the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, nerdy confab of physicists in dingy lab coats create time lump that throws reality back to the 1960s when washing machines and dishwashers actually worked. But operatives of Big Bleach and the Borax Mule Drivers Union stage a raid to shut down the portal. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a great roundtable interview conducted by our sometime podcast co-host David F. Sherrad this time with authors of a great new anthology he edited, The Chronicles of Davids. Oh man, this is a good one. Stories filled with Maximum Dave, as we like to say. You got it. It's stories that are by... David Weber, David Drake, Gregory Benford, and David Brand, David B. Coe, DJ Dave Butler, Avram Davidson, David H. Keller, and a cover by David Mattingly. You get the idea. David F. Sherrod talks with DJ Butler, David Boop, David B. Coe, and David Hardy about the anthology. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The October E-Arcs are whizzing out over the reading landscape like ghosts released from an exploding ectocontainment unit. Now, an E-Arc is the cry of a ghost when it realizes it doesn't have any feet but tapers to a point that it must attempt to anchor in the beliefs of the superstitious-minded. No, that's not right. An E-Arc is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. It's an e-book that is a galley of a book to come, not proofread but copy-edited, and you can get the new book in your favorite series or author or try out a new author months in advance of the print and ebook release dates. It's huge fun to know the future, or at least that delightful little chunk provided by a Bain EARC. The October EARCs include Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. From the Embers of a Destroyed World. Thirty years ago, the world ended. Giant electrovoric ants and... Pteranodons came through a rift. In space-time, millions of humans died, and that was that. Thirty years later, humanity has rebuilt, sort of. Human ingenuity has provided some creative solutions to life without electricity, because those ants are still around, but most folks survive at the subsistence level, farming to keep themselves and their families fed. Into this world comes a lifelong cowboy, a mystic warrior monk, a beautiful dragon tamer, a runaway cultist, and a mysterious drunken lecher, all searching for the key to reclaiming humanity's future from humanity's past. Also out now is Penrick's Progress E-Arc by Lois McMaster Bujol. Welcome a new fantasy hero from Lois McMaster Bujol. On the way to his betrothal, young Lord Penrick happens upon a riding accident and stops to help. But the victim is no ordinary woman. She is a temple divine, servant to the five gods of this world. Her avowed god is the bastard, master of all disasters out of season. As she lies dying, she passes her strange powers to Penric and changes the course of his life forever. Follow Penric on his journey from noble young lord to sorcerer and scholar in the bastard's order. This one contains the novellas Penric's demon, Penric and the shaman, and Penric's fox. And now available in e-arc format is Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. The beginning of life at the end of the solar system. About to embark on NASA's first expedition to the outer planets, the crew of the spacecraft Magellan learns something else has beaten them by a few decades, a top-secret Soviet project named Archangel. It was a mission that began before most of them were even born, and the Kremlin believes it drove their most trusted crew mad. During their long race to the Kuiper Belt, Astronauts Jack Templeton and Tracy Keene unwind a decades-long mystery buried in the pages of a dead cosmonaut's journal. Challenging their beliefs about the nature of humanity, they will soon confront the question of existence itself. 
ERG's Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs, Penrick's Progress by Lois McMaster Bujold, and Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo. Casey Ezel and Christopher L. Smith are available exclusively at Bain.com. Go to the Bain.com website, go to the ebooks, and load up on the future. Hey everyone, it's David Afshirod back here on the Bain Free Radio Hour to talk about a new anthology I edited for Bain. This is the first and best all David's anthology. It is called The Chronicles of David's, and it is out now in ebook and trade paperback. Collecting 15 tales of science fiction and fantasy, these are stories with Maximum Dave. Joining me here on the podcast are several other Davids. Uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit about how the book came about. Uh, this is uh, the thing I've told people the title of the book and the concept that it's called The Chronicles of Davids, and everyone in the book, with a few exceptions, which I'll talk about in a moment, has David somewhere in his name. And uh, people usually uh, chuckle, say something like, man, that's great, but then they also have this look like, who in the world came up with that idea? And the answer is uh, a man you've heard here on the podcast in the past as Christopher Rocchio, who is uh, a science fiction author, and he's also edited several books at Bain. And he uh, has also, uh, he's an associate editor at Bain Books. And uh, I was hanging out with Christopher at DragonCon, and he was the one that point, we were talking about uh, so many people at Bain are named David. There's me. Uh, and then the gentlemen, uh, most of several of whom uh, on the call, David Weber, of course, David Drake. Uh, you've heard of these people. Uh, and we were laughing about it. And Christopher said, we should do an anthology. You could edit it and we'll get David Mattingly to do the cover. And we laughed about it. We thought this is very funny. Ha ha. Uh, but then Christopher uh, was at Liberty Con, I think, the next year. And he may have had some liquid encouragement. I'm not sure. I can't speak to that specifically. I was not there. But he was at a room party with Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. And uh, he said, Tony, let me tell you this idea I've got. And then later on, I'm on a phone call with Tony Weiskopf about something completely unrelated. And we're getting off the call. And she says, oh, and by the way, we need to talk about the David's book you're going to do. And that was when I officially got the job as editor of The Chronicles of David's uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy with Maximum Dave. And uh, we decided Bain had a lot of Davids, not quite enough to fill an entire book, although we could have come close. But there are so many Davids in the broader science fiction and fantasy field. And uh, I email, you know, emailed a bunch of them, and uh, everybody's reaction was, uh, that's so weird. I'm in. Uh, and so that is how the Chronicles of David's came about. Uh, Christopher, unfortunately, could not be in the book. I asked him his middle name is Paul, so he doesn't really have the credentials to be in the book. But he was the one who uh, who came up with the idea and showed us the way. So that is how the Chronicles of David's came about. I'm sure you were all had a burning desire to know that. And now you do. Uh, so now I'd like to meet the Daves that we have uh, here on the call. And although I know all these gentlemen and uh, we've we've interacted socially, it's going to be kind of formal. I think I'm going to have to call everyone Mister and then their last name because otherwise this call is going to be uh, just going to be bedlam. Uh, so first up, we have Mr. David Boop. He is a Denver-based speculative fiction author and editor. He is the author of She Murdered Me with Science, A Whisper to a Scheme, and The Soul Changers, among many other things. He is probably best known around these parts as the editor of the Weird Western series of anthologies from Bain, including Straight Out of Tombstone, Straight Out of Deadwood, and Straight Out of Dodge City. The first two titles in that series are out now, I believe, or the first one certainly is, and the second one, if it's not out now, will be out soon. Dave, you can... Uh, October 1st. It came out October 1st. Okay, so it is out now. Awesome. Okay. And then the third one will be out uh, next year. So, Mr. David Booth, thank you so important. much for being on. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, David. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, uh, Straight Out of Dodge City comes out uh, February 4th. All right. Excellent. We will look forward to that. 
next up, DJ Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He is the author of, among several other novels and short stories, Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, and Witchy Kingdom from Bane Books as well as the forthcoming The Cunning Man with Aaron Michael Ritchie, and also the forthcoming In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. Uh, DJ Butler, is it true that your first name is actually Daniel and you lied to me so that you could be in this anthology and told me it was David? Uh, it, that's an outrageous, filthy lie, but it is true that I would have, because upon hearing such a glorious uh, idea, who would not have <laughs> ventured so far as to legally change his name to be in this anthology? Well, hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, next up, we have David B. Coe. Uh, you may also know him as D.B. Jackson. He is the author of more than 20 novels and as many short stories. As D.B. Jackson, he is the author of Times Children and Times Demons, books one and two in the I, I, I LaVale cycle. Dave, you're going to have to correct me on that. As well as the, okay, as well as the Thief Taker Chronicles, a historical fantasy set in pre-revolutionary Boston. As David B. Coe, he is here as David B. Coe. He has written uh, epic fantasies and media tie-ins and uh, also the case files of Justice Fearson, um, the story of which we'll be talking about tonight is set in that world. He's best known for the Crawford Award-winning Lon Tobin Chronicle and uh, the, the Justice Fearson stuff. I, I don't know if you're best known for that, but you're known, best known for that are probably on this podcast. So, uh, David B. Coe, Mr. D.B. Jackson, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> it's a pleasure for both of us. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, no, it, it's, it's great to be here, and I'm really pleased to be part of the project, and it's nice to have a to have a new venue for uh, for a, a Justice Fearson story. And last but not least, uh, from just down the road from me in Austin, Texas, uh, we have David Hardy. He is the author of Crazy Greta, Palmetto Empire, and numerous Western historical and adventure stories. Uh, he is also, uh, I believe, working on a novel that is set in the world of uh, his story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, he will correct me if I'm wrong about that. David Hardy, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, quite an honor. Can you hear me okay? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think actually being in uh, Chronicles of David's might be my, my actual claim to fame because not, my, uh, my other novels are I've tended to fly under the radar. Well, yeah, you do. As you said, you you said I'm very commercially minded. I write Western short stories in the 21st century, so uh, we hope that this will get some eyeballs uh, on your on your stuff. If, however, we can help. Um, so yeah, I, I think guess... looking to be differentiated. That's terrific. To terrific. Dedication to art. That's what it's yeah. all about, right? You're not in it for crass lucre. Exactly. <laughs> but but if you have any crass lucre, I'll throw it your way. Let's see. Uh, let's start with Dave Butler. Why not? Um, I mentioned The Cunning Man, which is a new novel that you co-wrote with Aaron Michael Ritchie. And uh, Hiram Woolley is the main character in that novel, and he is the main character in your story in The Chronicles of David's. And I want to talk about him in just a second. But first, I want to talk about that title of yours. I think we can say it on the air. We're a podcast, so we're not under the thumb of the FCC. It's The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen is the name of the story. Uh, yeah. could, could you tell us what the title refers to and uh, how you came to that uh, provocative uh, uh, name there? So, so uh, you know, uh, my dad actually told me uh, – my dad was my scoutmaster for a few years when I was a teenager. Uh, and he told me years and years ago, uh, hey, that mountain over there at the south end of the valley is named Molly's Nipple. And I thought, oh, that's hilarious. Um, much more recently, about two years ago, I learned that actually the state of Utah has at least seven and possibly as many as 11 <clears throat> mountains – and also a well, all named Molly's Nipple. And uh, they were named Molly's Nipple by the same guy. Uh, it was a guy named John Kitchen, 
who is, is we're talking about like the 1840s and 50s, right? So Brigham Young was sort of a uh, he ruled by fiat around here, and he sent he sent John Kitchen out to go exploring, and John did, and everywhere he went, he named things Molly's nipple. Um, now this is this is this is the real world. Uh, so it remains the case if you're driving south out of Utah Valley with your Google Maps on, and you're watching names appear on your phone. Molly's nipple will pop up on the left hand side, and um, uh, so so the the question arises, right? Uh, who, who is Molly? And and we have no idea. It turns out the records were not very good from uh, from that period. Presumably a woman he knew, right? Uh, so I'd had this fact in my head for a while, uh, and then when I started writing stories about Hiram Woolley, who is a 1930s wizard who is who is uh, from Utah, uh, I knew at some point I was going to have to write a, a story called The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen. And when I learned I was going to be in an anthology alongside names like uh, you know David Hardy and uh, David Bico and David Boop, I said, okay, this is my chance. The, the readers of these guys are never going to read me unless I put something really provocative on the title page. Uh, so then I had to figure out a story to, to go with the title. And this is, I believe, you've written several stories about uh, Hiram Woolley, but I think this is the first one in print. Correct. Uh, yes, so we, is a world debut uh, yeah. in the Chronicles of David. Beating me by exactly one month. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> I also have a Hiram Woolley story in uh, straight out of uh, Deadwood that I, I asked David for, uh, yeah. Mr. Butler for, and yeah. um, uh, you beat me by a month. I'm, I'm I will never forgive you. I, <laughs> I, I told I slipped uh, Marla and Tony some money. I said I can't have David Boop scoop me on Hiram Woolley. Put me a month ahead of him on the Bain schedule, and it worked. Um, <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, I will keep that in uh, mind for the <laughs> uh, So, uh, David Butler, uh, Dave Butler, uh, let's talk about Hiram Woolley. You, you mentioned a little bit he's a uh, wizard in the 30s in Utah, but um, yeah. kind of flesh out his character a little bit for uh, the listeners. So, uh, so he's a, he, and this is a time of real transition nationally and in, in the state of Utah. Uh, and Hiram is a deeply liminal, a character. Uh, he has a feat in sort of um, in opposed worlds in lots of ways. So uh, he's um, so he's a Mormon sugar beet farmer, uh, born in the 19th century. His his father's a polygamist. He does not realize this. Uh, he's the only child of his of his mother, and he doesn't know why his father's not around till the day his father shows up to uh, tell him. Uh, that uh, we're going to Mexico and you don't get to come and abandons uh, him and his mother. Uh, and so, and his mother shortly afterwards disappears and Hiram doesn't actually know what happened to his mother. Uh, so he grows up on his grandma Hetty's sugar beet farm uh, in Lehigh, Utah, uh, learning farming from her and also learning her traditional magical lore. So this is a story about a, a wizard or, or, um, in some ways, it's about a paladin. It's about a kind of a, a guy who really wants to do good. Uh, and and one of the one of the fun things about it has been uh, virtually one hundred percent of the magic that's in the in the book and in in the three or four stories that are coming out uh, about now uh, is taken from real historical sources. It's the it's kinds of things that actual English practitioners in the so-called cunning man tradition. Uh, really did. So Hiram carries a bloodstone in his pocket to prevent his being deceived, and he wears a, a Cairo medallion, an iron medallion with the symbol Cairo and the inscription in hoc signo vinces uh, to uh, to protect him from harm, and and uh, practices divination by you know the dissolving of clay balls by uh, by uh, sieve and shears and and other other. Uh, uh, he wouldn't even acknowledge the word spells, other craft, um, other charms. Yes, yeah, so we've mentioned uh, there's been, I think, what, three or four short stories now, and you co-wrote the, the novel the, with Aaron Michael Ritchie, which is coming out, I think, November. Do you know for sure? I'm trying to remember. I got a box of them, uh, geez, yesterday. 
All right, very cool. Um, so I just wonder, it's it's very smart from a marketing standpoint. We're talking about, uh, you know, our, our genius marketing of an all David's anthology and writing Westerns in the 21st century and all this. But um, it is smart from a marketing standpoint to write about these these stories about your series character. Hopefully yeah. someone will, the, the people reading Chronicles of David's um, will pick up The Cutting Man uh, and maybe vice versa. But I wonder... Um, for more artistic reasons, too, uh, does it help you to understand? And actually, David Coe, why don't you jump in on this, too, since you've got a story, um, Justice Fierce, and this is one of your series characters. Uh, does it help you to understand your characters and the world you've created to write these side stories? How does that maybe help you as a writer or as a world builder or character creator to take these little side jaunts? And... Uh, uh, Dave Butler, why don't you start, and uh, maybe David Coe, if you want to weigh in, and uh, anyone else, if you've got thoughts on that as well. Sure. Yeah, so I was, we were writing the novel and these stories um, sort of uh, contemporaneously, or at least, you know, in between the first draft of the novel and then the revision of the novel, I wrote the stories. And yeah, I found it helpful to kind of explore um, uh, ideas about, so Hiram's Hiram's a widower and a great war veteran, and he uh, there there are no romantic relationships in the novel. The the principal character relationship between between him and his adopted Navajo son, and uh, so uh, the short stories let me try out some ideas about how old the son really should be in the 30s to get the dynamic I wanted, uh, and um, uh, what uh, kinds of solutions. Hiram might attempt uh, his his solution um, in the Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen is not a magical one. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's a it's sort of a medical solution. Um, so yeah, it was it was useful, um, almost like writing little exploratory drafts. Yeah, I find it's really helpful in several ways. It lets me explore elements of the character that I might not get to in a novel. It allows me to play with the world a little bit and get a feel for my setting. Uh, it's really helpful with voice when I'm trying to kind of perfect that that unique sound that you want in your narrator. And, and the Justice Fearson books are all first-person narrator. Uh, and so getting that voice right is really essential for the success of a story or a book. And I find that the short stories are, are wonderful for practicing that and for improving my feel as a writer for, for what I'm doing when I sit down to work on a longer piece like a novel. Uh, it's also something that I recommend when I'm teaching uh, to starting writers because it allows us to learn more about our characters and our worlds and our voice, and it gives us something to sell when we're still working on the novel uh, and for beginning writers, it's much easier to move a novel. If you have a short story sale or two or three under your belt from working on these uh, shorter pieces. So I, it's, it's to me, it's a win, win, win situation. There is, there is no shortcoming. There's a, there's no drawback to playing with short fiction on a, on a character who's going to be the star of a novel. Uh, David Boop or Dave Hardy. Uh, Dave Hardy, I know you, I believe you're writing a, um, a a novel set in this world. Was this short story something that came, and I want to talk to you more about that in a second, was did this short story come first and you thought, hmm, maybe I should do more with that? Or how did that, what, what, yeah. where are you in that process? Maybe we, you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to jinx it. I'm not sure. Uh, no problem. No, uh, A Servant of the Protector definitely came first. Um, I, I was thinking of it as a concept, trying to write uh, sort of my homage to space opera. And I was thinking about what's what's one of the core elements is that kind of super superhero type, the lensman. Yet at the same time, he's sort of bound to uh, a social order that he has to defend. Uh, and uh, from there, I, 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 I took a little idea from... Uh, Barrington Bailey's Pillars of Eternity, where the, the protagonist, Joachim Boaz, has his entire skeleton filled 
with computer processing uh, devices, so that he literally is a walking is a walking computer, capable of of comprehending uh, everything around him and acting on it. So I I thought that was kind of fascinating, and yet I realized that you can't you know uh, the emerging culture that we've got in terms of of computer use is is the network is everything's connected. So at what point you know if you cram your superhero full of cybernetics is he really is he really himself is he just like a machine attached to a a bigger network and controlled um, and bizarrely enough that led me to the my my novel it was sort of a follow up on this it was uh, actually a uh science fiction retelling of the uh the uh the the saga of king hythric the wise which is a kind of a traditional Viking saga about a, a gothic, a goth king and his cursed sword, uh, the, you know, sometimes called the Turving Saga. And I thought, well, what if the sword wasn't just cursed, but the sword was a cybernetic attachment to the king, to that individual? How do those two people interrelate? And, and of course, in the back of my mind was H. Bean Piper's classic Space Viking story. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, you give me an opening and it just all comes out, you know, Lensman, H. Beam Piper, uh, with a little bit of with a little bit of cyberpunk thrown in. Uh, I'm actually working on a on a on another novel also set in that, which uh, uh, develops again, kind of going back to some of the stuff that Doc Smith wrote about you know his lensmen they're they're kind of fascinating and in, in an early you know one of the early lensmen novels they mentioned oh yeah we got to deal with those the wizards from you know the north pole of jupiter and I thought, oh my god what a great idea <laughs> but then it's but then they're taking on space pirates and uh interplanetary drug dealers and you know this is just catnip for me i mean space pirates drug dealers so and of course you know my you know years and years of reading about pirates of you know every kind of stripe ever uh not to mention you know the you know modern uh sagas of of you know gangsters and drug dealers like tv's narcos i thought okay this is a fertile fertile field um so yeah it's kind of that that that's kind of what I'm what I'm interested in. Now, of course, at the core of it is uh, kind of the concept. Of the, the my short story is called titled "The Servant of the Protector," and it's about the servant, uh, and in, you know individuals who are kind of cybernetically adapted to be warriors uh, as part of this galactic empire, and so they're they tend to be rather driven persons when they're given a mission. And uh, yet at the same time, they sort of have to reflect on what humanity around them is like and how they are different because they remain humans. Yeah, I really uh, let's just segue in and um, I'll come. I was going to segue into Justice Fearsome, but I'm going to segue into Servant of the Protector and we'll we'll bounce back to uh, David Coe. You mentioned a lot of this stuff just in this um, on the podcast already, but you and I have talked about it, which is um, one thing I love about your story is that it's got a real pulp era feel to it. And uh, we've talked a lot about our shared love for like, you know, in quotes, the good old stuff, uh, the pulp days. And I just wanted to get uh, your take and anyone else's take um, on like, why, what is it about those stories from that era that like Howard and Burroughs and um, Doc Smith and God, who Jack Williamson and all these that are living on there's I mean Princess of Mars is over a hundred years old now and I'll still meet people who just read it just for fun you know it's not in a class or something and um, and I and I know you write westerns too which you know had a, a big pulp tradition and I just wonder what is it about those stories um, that appeals to you and that you think that they're still finding an audience in either their work or work that's inspired by it. Uh, I, I, I love the adventure genre in all of its phases because it is about, it is, 
it's a genre that allows a storyteller to talk about primal things. The individual who has to accomplish something. And it can be, you know, maybe it's taking down an interstellar drug network. Maybe it's rescuing somebody from a horrible captivity. Uh, but that focus on, an, on individuals who are driven to accomplish something. Uh, you know, and I think it differs from a lot of other genres, which aren't, which isn't to say that other genres aren't bad or the literary fiction is bad, but it's, it has a, it, it all, it has a primal ring to it. Uh, and you know, if it's, you know, you can, you can write some really, really great stuff about, you know, somebody reflecting on how bad their childhood was or something like that, but, um, you know, does it have that universal connection? Because, you know, adventure, like I say, it's re it's really primal. It's very basic. Because in the end, we all know we're individuals who are have drives to accomplish things. Yeah, I think that answered it well. And um, one thing I think is clear from your writing, at least what I've read of it, um, is that that I appreciate... And again, I mean, like, I can get into some navel-gazing literary fiction, too. you got to be in the right mood, but that's fine. But I think I, I really like that uh, the story moves. Like, it, it's it got, like, it, 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 I cannot remember who it was. A.E. Van Vogt, maybe. Somebody said, like, every, some, someone jump in and correct me here, but he was like, every 8,000 words you should have, like, an explosion or something like that, right? Um, where just you all keep... the spells have a man, man walk through the door with a gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, well, uh, that it's you know, there's something really basic about uh, about conflict because conflict is what drives stories. And you know, if you're being chased by interstellar drug dealers armed with uh, plasma pistols, hell, you got some conflict. conflict. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you you also say that that. Uh... There, there's something very archetypal, right? I mean, I think that um, the great thing about adventure fiction is it grabs the archetypes directly by which our unconscious mind has always organized the categories of experience. Uh, and so I think, I think actually, uh, often the, the challenge with navel-gazing literary fiction um, is that it doesn't do that, and, and it becomes an, an, an exercise in in verbal virtuosity or descriptiveness, but doesn't actually give people the psychic tools that a story out of the Brothers Grimm or by Louis L'Amour would. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna add to I'm gonna add to that by the idea that you know when we look at at narrative historically, you know sometimes we just want to be able to step away from our own world and spend time in somebody else's. And if that world is too much like our own, where we're dealing, where the characters are dealing with some of the same stuff that we're dealing with every day. Yeah. Sometimes that can be very cathartic to feel like somebody else has experienced what we've experienced, but sometimes we don't want to experience what we're experiencing. Sometimes we need to give our brain a rest. And when we look at the classic pulp era when it came into existence, you know, we were dealing with depression era and thing and war and stuff like that. And people didn't want to think about what their day to day life was like. They wanted to escape and, um, you know, escapist fiction, uh, is, is a tried and true type of fiction that it's good to play in from time to time. It doesn't mean that we can't bring some of the uh, uh, pathos back to the Greek tragedies. You know, I mean, you know, there are plenty of deep characters in, in pulp, uh, but that doesn't mean that those characters are always having to deal with that depth. I mean, we go to work, you know, Five days out of the week, we may only be challenged uh, emotionally one of those days. 
You know, we, we may only have one bad day out of four, um, which means the rest of the days we're doing our job. And pulp is like that. Some days the hero has to go, why am I still doing this job? Uh, whereas the other days are like, oh, my God, aliens are invading and I've got to save the planet again. You know. Uh, David Coe, um, let's circle back to you. Um, after that, I don't have anything to add. That was a great discussion on the importance of pulp literature, I think. Um, but uh, let's circle back and talk a little bit about uh, <coughs> Justice Fearson. Um, and I, you, you've probably been on the podcast talking about all three. Of the, the three books um, in the series are Spellblind, His Father's Eyes, and Shadow's Blade. And uh, you've probably talked yeah. about them before, but it's probably been a minute. So if you could, like, just sort of um, give us a window into the, the Justice Fearsome world uh, for the listeners. Yeah, the Justice Fearsome books, they don't hark, it, it, they're not reminiscent of pulp. They're actually reminiscent of noir, which I think of as being related and kind of almost contemporary, uh, you know, contemporaries of, of pulp stuff. But it's it's also a hearkening back to a different time and a different sort of storytelling, more the the, the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler uh, approach. But these are detective novels with a magical element. My um, character, my lead character and some of his closest friends and, and most dangerous enemies are what are known as wearmists. And so every month on the full moon, they kind of go insane. Their magic strengthens, but their minds weaken and they can't control their magic. It's almost a a, a Jekyll Hyde thing. So he's he's able to use his magic throughout a month, but on those three days around the, the full moon and the day before and after, he loses his mind. He's he, And over time, those moon phasings are taking a toll and driving him permanently insane, as they did his father, who's a recurring character in the books. Um, and so every book kind of has, and every story, including uh, this story, Long Night's, uh, I believe it's called Long Night's Moon. Um, it is, in, yes. In this, not in the title. Um, but all of the stories have this this kind of ticking clock, because the invariably the full moon is bearing down on him and he has only so much time to get through whatever mystery it is he's trying to solve before everything goes to hell on him. Um, and this was a really fun story to write. It was, it was uh, set actually, I think slightly before Spellbind, the first book in the series uh, in the, in the chronology of, of Jay Fearson's development. This is really the first episode that readers get of him um and he's solving a fairly mundane mystery but in the course of doing that he's forced to kind of stare down and and beat down this this gang of young upstart wearmists who are kind of rabble rousing and 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 playing with powers that they don't quite understand. He's forced to come in as kind of this grizzled veteran and say, whoa there, guys, you need to learn your stuff before you're going to do this. Um, and uh, as I said, it was a really fun story to write. But it's all about the noir stuff. I really, with the with the Fearson, with the Thief Taker books I write as D.B. Jackson, with a couple of other things I've done, I love mysteries and I love hearkening back to that noir period, uh, that voice of a detective kind of hard-boiled and and stripped away of of some of the the flowery language that maybe works its way into some of my epic fantasies these are these are grittier books and they're really fun to write and i hope they're really fun to read i, I certainly have enjoyed uh enjoyed going through them and reading others who write in a similar vein to kind of learn learn my chops while i was getting ready to write these these stories and books yeah i'm a, a I've sure i've said it to all of you or most of you in person and i've probably said it on this podcast i'm a huge mystery crime fan and i particularly the hard-boiled and noir genre so i've always liked the justice fierce and stuff and i should mention uh the chronicles of david's just for those of you who are going hey hang on a second it is primarily news stories um we um i 
I'd have to get I kind of do I'd have to look at the numbers, but it's it's mostly new. Uh, but there are a few uh, reprints in it. Um, some because the authors have passed away um, in two cases, and then there's a couple. Uh, and David Coe, yours is one of them. This was a story that was originally on Bain.com, and uh, I'd asked you because I wanted you to be in the book, but you had like deadlines upon deadlines upon deadlines. So um, <laughs> yeah. It was- so this is yeah. a, this is I'm, a reprint, but we're gl- we're glad to have this it. Is a re- I'm writing a new Justice Fearson story right now for the Bane Liberty Con anthology that'll be out next spring. Oh great, yeah, this is uh, give me Liberty Con, and I'm sure we'll talk about that on the podcast. But uh, yeah, it's it's all Bane writers, and it's going uh, part of the proceeds are going to a charity um, in honor of. Um, uh, now I can't remember. Timmy Boldio, uh, Uncle Timmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Timmy Boldio and the Literacy Project in uh, in Chattanooga. Yeah, oh, that's great. So so Justice Fearson rides again. Okay, great. Justice Fearson rides again, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, David Boop, let's talk about Lyman Gilmore Jr.'s Impossible Dream. I got the title right. Um this is I, I, the other thing. I so I was putting this together. I realized that uh, so this is an, uh, another. This is sort of a weird western, um, and I realized that everyone we're talking to today, they, we all all these stories sort of have a um, almost like a yeah like a western or a hard boiled or a pulp era feel, and uh, a lot of the book is that. Um, but there is some stuff I should mention that is not that's not. This is maybe not the most representative sample, although I'm happy, glad we could get this going. But um, we do have stuff that is in the book that is um, uh, sort of that that doesn't have that feel to it too. I tried to get a real wide range of things, um, from high fantasy uh, to kind of more absurdist stuff to military science fiction and uh, some humor in there too. But uh, so I just want to say that, but. I'd love these stories that do have that feel that we're talking about today. And uh, David Boop, your story is a well, sort of a weird Western, and it is at the same time based on a true story in a way. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, you know, we could make the uh, make the comment that those uh, authors in the book that are writing uh, military sci-fi and, and and epic sci-fi and space opera are too busy with all of their money, and the people who write weird westerns and noir <laughs> have the time to that be would, on the podcast. But I'm not going to make that, that comment. Would be an we'll leave that for the audience to decide. So. Um, yeah, so, um, well, some of them are dead too. That's why they're not on. Anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Lyman Gilmore Jr. Uh, was a real person in this story. Uh, he was a gentleman out in California, um, uh, right, right before the, uh, the the end of the uh, 19th century who invented a steam power airplane that flew almost a mile a good year before the Wright brothers. The problem was twofold. Number one, uh, he was not able to accurately record this. He was not actually able to prove this. Uh, And then number two, uh, you know, it was uh, by the time he got everything to Washington to the patent office, the Wright brothers were were already on the way. So he missed his opportunity to be the the inventor of the modern airplane. So instead, Lyman Gilmore Jr., being the uh, uh, industrious person that he is, invented the world's first commercial airport uh, because he knew that those planes would have to land somewhere. And uh, and so he is known in history for that. So he's an interesting character. I stumbled across a book, a little biography on him, uh, a little micro press. And I was reading this guy and I was just fascinated by him. And there is um, for those of you guys who don't know, there's this thing called the the mysterious airship or the great airship of 1893 which is in California and other places along the the Pacific, 
um, these people had this vision or the sighting of a an airship, which, when you look at the description, sounds like a modern, um, you know, Boeing, you know, jet, you know, uh, air, uh, airplane. Uh, they describe it as being silver. They describe it as having the wings. They describe passengers in it looking out of windows, which, of course, nothing was like that available at the time. And there are, there are all sorts of books written about it. But Lyman Gilmore was one of these people. He had a vision, and he started building that airplane. Uh, so, yeah, if you look him up, he, he's a fascinating character. There's lots of things. And I thought about his whole quest with this um, with building this airplane and the visions and the borderline kind of craziness that goes along with being a man of vision or person of vision of any sort. Um, and I thought, you know, he's got a very Cajote uh, esque uh, story to him, plus steam powered airplane, very steampunk, very weird Western. And he lived at a time where where a lot of these things are set. So um, I made a uh, I made a Quixote esque story where uh, he he builds his plane and he has to fight actual dragons. Sorry, my mic was on mute. Okay, uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, I want to tell a quick story about this because I I was not aware. I, I learned just now that he invented the airport. Um, so thank you for that uh, informative bit of information. But mm-hmm. I did not know he was I, – I think you had told me he was a real guy and he'd kind of been working on a plan. But I didn't know the all the timing that you just laid out. And we had a really thorough uh, and very good copy editor on this book and uh, who was a history buff. And he came to me with the copy edits for your story – and saying like, I don't think this guy might need to work on his dates because this doesn't make you you can't have him flying a plane now because mm-hmm. that's a year before the Wright brothers. And I thought, oh no, Dave, he didn't get the dates right. Mm-hmm. It's probably an easy fix. I hope he's not too upset. And then you told me this. Uh, actually, this happened. This guy actually did fly a plane. Um, you know, according to some accounts, a year before mm-hmm. the Wright brothers. So, mm-hmm. um. Yeah, there's a little piece of hidden history about that. You kind of you do that uh, a little. I don't know this a lot, but you've you've done that before, where you take sort of a secret history or a side history. Do you go out looking for those things, or is it sort of just you're naturally drawn to these weird little tidbits, and then your mind starts working on them? Um, how does that work? Uh, both, actually. Yeah. Yes, um, I, I call it going down the rabbit hole. Uh, when I start researching something, uh, sometimes that research will take me in places uh, that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, uh, when I was writing a, a second Noel Glass story, the uh, character in She Murdered Me with Science, um, which dealt with trying to build a sentient robot in 1955, um, I started really exploring some things about robot uh, like rights and stuff like that um, just because I wanted to understand robotics a little bit more. And I picked up a lot of books and so forth, which led me to a write a near future science fiction story about a, uh, you know, a sentient robot and dealing with uh, personal rights. Uh, so sometimes research in another era will take me, you know, to the past or all the way to the future. It just really depends on what I discover when I'm down the rabbit hole. And unfortunately, sometimes that will distract from the writing. But I always come up with a lot of really interesting material that I save for a, a later time. Uh, this is uh, Lyman Gilmore Jr.'s Impossible Dream is set in my uh, Drowned Horse Chronicle. Uh, and to date there's been 20, well, 19, uh, drowned horse stories and two reprints, uh, but there's on slate to be 30. And so when I do research, uh, for a drowned horse story, I, I tend to find things that I can, I can use later. So, yeah. 
it's it's fun. I'll I'll set that a little aside, or I'll go. Oh, I want to read more about that, and I'll order the book, uh, a research book on it, and tuck it to the side and, until I need to write another drowned horse story, and then I'll start cracking out open what I've what I've discovered in previous researches. But yes, it's a, a fun. I love it. I love the idea of secret history. Yeah, well, uh, gentlemen, we could probably keep talking all night, but I uh, want to uh, uh, probably wrap it up there, um, if I may. Uh, I do want to mention uh, a couple of the other people or everyone else in the book, um, just briefly. Uh, there's a David Weber story. Uh, this is this is one of the reprints. This is set in uh, the Bolo universe. Uh, the anthology kicks off with a brand new David Drake story set in his RCN uh, series. Uh, there's uh, a Hank Davis story. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Dave Freer wrote a science fiction story. Um, let me see. David Carrico wrote sort of a, a pretty brutal kind of uh, epic fantasy uh, tale. Uh, Dave Barra is in here. Avram Davidson. Uh, D.L. Young uh, wrote sort of a, he calls it um, sort of Hal 9000 meets Ed Wood story of <laughs> Hollywood in the near future. Um, and then there's a, a reprint by uh, David H. Keller, the old, old uh, pulp air. This is from a, this is a story from 1930 that uh, I think was in, may have been in Weird Tales. Uh, I can't remember now. Um, but I do want to mention one other thing. I said this is an all David's anthology that's sort of with a wink and a nudge. There are three um, guys in here that don't really have David anywhere in their name, and I want to address that, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, the first is Gregory Binford. That's because he co-wrote a story with David Brin that I really liked called um, I Could Have Done Better. And uh, I thought, well, he's a David by association then. Uh, and then the other one, another one is uh, Hank Davis, uh, who you've probably heard on the podcast in the past. He's edit works for Bain. He's editor emeritus. And he uh, edits a lot of Bain's uh, reprint anthologies. Um, and we figured, well, S is right next to D on the QWERTY keyboard, so we like Hank. We'll let him in. Uh, and then the last one is the hardest one to justify, which is Barry in Malsberg, right? You can't even think maybe his middle name is David because he puts the N in there. And the way that happened was I'd asked David Drake to be in the anthology and he's good friends with Barry Malsberg and I get an e David Drake says he'll do it and uh, I get an email from David Drake later saying uh, Barry Malsberg wants to write a story for this and I told him he could hope that's okay that's well <laughs> I'm not good. it's too late now but even so I, I'm a big fan of David Drake and I'm a really big fan of Barry Malsberg he um was one of the writers that I started kind of first noticed when I started reading science fiction and fantasy and crime and horror stories. You know, his name would pop up a lot in stories that I liked. And so I thought this is a great opportunity to edit Barry in Malsberg. Not edit him. I didn't really edit him much, but to help publish uh, Barry Malsberg uh, for sure, even though it doesn't make much sense. Well, turns out Barry Malsberg misunderstood what the anthology was. A few years back, you guys may remember, uh, Bain did a, a David Drake tribute anthology. Uh, and it was stories, uh, David Drake was character in some, um, some were set in his universes that he created. And uh, Barry Malsberg somehow thought that we were doing another one. And so he wanted to write a story for that. And so he did. He wrote a story called uh, an epilogue, The House of David. And it's sort of um, I I don't know if it's correct to say it's about David Drake, but it, it works as sort of a David Drake tribute and um, plays, it's, it's a really powerful story and uh, every character in it is named David. So that is how Wyberry in Malsberg is on the cover of a book uh, called The Chronicles of David. So I wanted to wrap up with that um, because people have been asking me and now it is on the record. So uh, we've been talking about the Chronicles of David's. Uh, it is out now, as I said, in ebook format and trade paperback from Bain Books. Uh, it's been out about a month, so um, 
you should already own it. And if you don't, run out and buy multiple copies. It is the perfect <laughs> gift for everyone in your life named David and everyone in your life not named David. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank all the Davids who have been on the podcast with me. Uh, oh, and I want one last thing. The cover art is done by David Mattingly. So it is David's through and through with those exceptions I just noted. So I want to thank the Davids who have been on talking about the book and their stories. Uh, DJ Dave Butler, David Boop, David B. Coe, and David Hardy. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for uh, being part of the anthology and for talking here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, David. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 40 there was a wide drainage ditch cut through the town, separating the castless quarter from the homes of the whole men. The ditch had been filled by the torrential rains and partially iced over during the night. The only way across was an old stone bridge that was completely covered in thick ice. Ashok crossed with an untouchable child cradled in each arm, and his bare feet leaving a smear of blood with each step. The girl had passed out, the boy was still crying. They weighed nothing. All of Jarlang seemed dirty and run down, but this quarter was far worse. The workers' roofs were made of shingles, the castlesses of straw. There was no order here, just haphazard buildings stacked deeper and deeper until there were only narrow channels for bodies to pass through. The workers' main street was paved with stone, the castlers didn't have an open space wide enough to call a street. And the path Ashok found himself on was nothing but ruts and frozen mud puddles. Always on the lookout for trouble, the castlers had seen him coming and gone into hiding. They probably didn't know what to make of a whole man in a fine merchant's coat carrying two of their own, so they'd retreated. He saw frightened eyes peeking out from behind slats, Who's in charge? Ashok's shout broke the early morning stillness. The sound startled a stray dog from beneath a pile of rotting timbers, and it ran away, tail between its legs. Come out! He continued through the maze, shouting. If they didn't answer soon, he'd pick a shack and leave the children inside. That thought angered him, and he wasn't even certain why. The barracks didn't have doors just curtains made of hide. One of those curtains parted, and a hunched-over female came hobbling out using a knotted old stick for a cane. Her hair was wild and white, her skin was yellowed, and had the same texture as the leather curtains. She stopped a few feet from Ashok, and he thought that she looked so brittle that if a strong wind pushed her over, she might shatter. These folks heed me. Her voice was stronger than her appearance suggested it would be. There was something too proud about this one. 
She wore her rags like a thakur would wear their finest silks. I'm Mother Dawn. Castless don't have titles. Mother is more of a nickname than a title. Her eyes were so clouded and grey that Ashok thought she might be blind, but then she looked right at the children in Ashok's arms. Poor little things. I saved these. How unexpectedly kind of you. Ashok had never been accused of kindness before. Take them. Then she put her fingers to her lips and whistled. It was a surprisingly sharp noise. Another curtain opened, and two castless women hurried over to Ashok and relieved him of the bodies. For a reason he couldn't begin to understand, he was hesitant to let go. I assure you they'll be tended to. He relented, and the meager weight was lifted from him. Ashok watched as they were taken inside a barracks, and the curtain closed. It was over. Ashok owed the castless no explanation and turned to go. We've been expecting you. Ashok kept walking. You know nothing of who I am. You are for... He paused. All of the youngsters speak of you at night. In the barracks, where their overseers can't hear. Some don't believe, but others do. It has been a long time since we've had a hero. Hero is an inappropriate description. Command them to stop. I'm not talking about these here, but all of us. Word of your existence has traveled across all the houses to every barracks and slum. It is good to have a new story. The few of us who've lived long enough to get old have been telling the ancient stories, hoping the day will come. And if we hope hard enough, sometimes the forgotten shows us things. He showed me you would come here. Ashok's curiosity got the better of him. What did your false god have to say about me? Say? The crazy old castless cackled. I'm no oracle. I don't know what that is. A title from the old days. Prophet, I suppose they call it nowadays, though I think that's just inexperienced keepers mixing up jobs. I've not heard the voice. I don't get the words. Couldn't write them down even if I did, so why waste perfectly good words on someone who can't read or write like me? I got no keeper here to scribble them down. Everybody knows an oracle always has a keeper in tow. How else would the Forgotten's words get recorded for his people? He shrugged. But I saw. The gods showed me two paths. You take one, we all die. You take the other, we live for a bit. But you might not. It weren't clear. Ashok studied the crone's milky eyes. No wonder. Two paths before you fall. Before you pick, know there are five hundred of our kind here. Innocent. And we'll all be punished for what you've done. Our only use in Jarlang is to work the terraces. Everything else is above us. No terraces to work during the winter, but we still eat up the food stores. Only this was a poor year, and there's not enough food. The workers don't like going hungry to keep us around. Spring's a way off still. Winter's long. They won't need much other excuse to kill off most of us. And you just gave them one. There was shouting on the other side of the bridge. He called upon the heart to focus his senses. Some villagers were telling the tale of the beaten workers, trying to rile up the others. Angry cries echoed through Jarlang. It is not right for them to punish you for something I did. Ashok muttered. 
We are all still being punished for something our ancestors did hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This comes as a surprise. There was a clang, clang, clang noise as a villager began beating on a kettle. That would serve as their alarm. Retribution had to be sought. Justice demands blood. These two paths you saw, where did each one lead? Both end in blood. You are born into this world to kill. That can't be helped, fall. The question is, whose blood will you spill first? Gather your friends and flee, or stay and fight? Will you help your brothers and sisters here live? Or will you abandon us to the mob so that you can continue to pretend to be something you are not? I don't want to hurt these workers. Workers? The mother tilted her head to the side. If only it were so easy. We can hide from workers until their rage cools. We have far more patience than they do. No, Fall, I was shown that something much worse is coming. The forgotten doesn't care how many innocents must perish to convince you, only that you are convinced. Of the many different gods the tribes worshipped back in the old days, I have been told that some of them were merciful, even kind and loving. The forgotten was not one of those. More noise was coming from the worker side of the village. Angry cries for vengeance were answered. Clubs banged a rhythm against walls. They were coming. The law demanded that he continue on his way. He may have made a foolish, emotional mistake getting involved earlier, but orders came first. Now he had time to think clearly, and he knew he had to get to Akershan and find the prophet. But Ashok couldn't move, torn between duty and something else. Shame? Doubt? He didn't know what to call it, but the unfamiliar emotion gnawed at him. He looked around the humble, castless quarter and knew that if he did what he was supposed to, this place and its inhabitants would be reduced to ash. Yes, Fall. Life would have remained simpler if you would have just let those children die. Only I didn't. He started for the bridge. She called after him. The Forgotten didn't show me that he'd picked someone too dumb to wear shoes after a nice storm. I was in a hurry. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Extreme thanks to Bain Consulting Editor David Afsharirod for conducting a great roundtable and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a fairy ring of toadstools big enough to accommodate the large folk and their minions plus copious drams of mead and really good pour-over ambrosia plus thanks, praise, and daves to DJ Butler, David Boop, David B. Coe, and David Hardy. Authors in The Chronicles of Davids, edited by David Afsharirod. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 